We are doing an expert interview and today I'm with Damien Hughes. We are talking largely about organisational development. So rather than me introduce your credentials, Damien, I think you'd do a better job than me. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me on, Joe. It's a real uh, honour to sort of chat with you. Um, for anyone listening, it's probably easier to explain the jobs I do uh, to uh, give some context. So um, I'm a professor of organisational psychology and change. Um, that's uh, my main role, but um, I work as a consultant psychologist across a wide range of organisations from business to sport to education. And then the third job I do is I write, so uh, I've done a number of books very much around the topics of sort of high-performing cultures and how and, and how to make change happen. Fantastic. Um, before we get into organisational development, let's touch on your most recent book, The Black Barcelona Way which is currently ranking on Amazon's bestsellers. Damien, what was your inspiration for writing this book? Yeah, so um, I got approached a number of years ago by a publisher who asked if I'd be interested in writing a book on, on the topic of um, culture. Um, and I said I'd love to do it. They said, would I be interested in trying to make it a little bit more accessible by viewing it through the lens of a sports team? Now, while that sounded an intriguing challenge, the reality is, like a lot of businesses, a lot of sports teams sort of pay lip service to the topic of culture. So they'll tell you how important it is, but the genuine level of investment or interest or, or focus tends to be quite minimal. Mm -hmm. So we narrowed it down to three teams that are genuinely use culture as a competitive advantage. So the first one was the New Zealand Rugby Union team. Yeah. The second one was the New England Patriots in the NFL. Oh, yeah. uh, and then the third one was FC Barcelona. So mm -hmm. I think it was airfare costs that meant the publisher said choose Barcelona. But the reality was um, it was it was the one that I felt had almost been unexplored and was really rich uh, yeah. for, uh, to link it. So what the idea was, was um, I looked at culture through the lens of how Barcelona had decided to to follow this process known as a commitment culture. Yeah. And a commitment culture is where you have a really clear set of um, principles or behaviours and you've got a really clear sense of why to why you exist. And what all the evidence says from all the research on the topic is a commitment culture tends to be a lot more successful over a sustained period than any other type of culture. So I look at the different types of cultures, but then specifically this idea of a commitment culture and how that can be used and harnessed within any organization, so anywhere where people are coming together for a common cause, how you can use it to then drive competitive advantage. Fantastic. Brilliant. How long did it take you to write it, Damien? Uh, it ended up being about three years. So um, I, I, I was back and forth from Catalonia for about 18 months, back and forth doing interviews and things like that. But, um, a lot of the research in terms of the most recent uh, research and the papers, um, that that took an awful lot of uh, wading through to be able to uh, uh, to give people sort of the idea that it isn't just about sport, it's about people that just happen to work in sport in this case. So yeah, it was a, it was a real late, I mean, I'm lucky enough I've done a number of books, Joe, so um, what I've realised now is that you have to really be intrigued and love the topic because it ends up dominating an awful lot of your waking hours. Okay. So, um, yeah, so it was a real three-year labour of love. 
Wow. Out of all the books you've written down, which has been your favourite and why? Oh, that's a difficult one. That's like asking to choose your favourite child. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I love them all um, because they're, uh, they all, um, they're all subjects that, that I really am passionate about and they often remind me of um, certain times in my life. Um, the book I wrote previous to the Barcelona Way was a book called The Winning Mindset and that yeah. was... Um, and that was um, a whole series of interviews that I did with elite sports coaches, but looking at uh, the topic of engagement. So how do you get people switched on and engaged? Yeah. But we, again, we viewed it through the lens of a sports team, uh, or a, 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 a sport, the sporting world, sorry. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd probably say I'm, I'm particularly fond of that because um, I almost wrote it, as it, it, so it's a bit of a love letter to my dad. So... Uh, my yeah. dad's quite poorly now, but yes. um, he was an elite uh, boxing coach um, all, all through my childhood. So I, my background is I grew up in a boxing gym. Yeah. And uh, while he's poorly now, I wanted to sort of pay tribute to some of the stuff that I'd seen him do. So I include some of the uh, stories from his own career as well. But in my head, it was a bit of a love letter to my dad and, and, and the sort of work he'd done. I love Lee. Yeah, so, uh, but I'd say the Barcelona way is a love letter to my professional life as well, because yeah. uh, that's where I've ended up spending a huge proportion of my working life has been sort of working around this topic of of, of creating high-performing cultures. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm just as fond of that as well. Yeah. Well, I won't make you choose one then, Damien. You, you won't what, sorry? I won't make you choose one, which is... Yeah, no, yeah, it's a brilliant question. I've never really thought about it, but like I say, when I, when I reflect on it, it's probably, uh, it is like choosing a, your favourite child. And I like that. You could like really that. do. Get it? Because if someone said to me, um, Joe, pick your favourite child, I wouldn't be able to. I love that answer. Yeah, oh, thank you. Um, thanks for that, Damien. Let's talk about organisational development. In okay, your brilliant. What is organisational development and what are key values? So organisational development is the idea of how do you create um, an environment where people can flourish and, and blossom and subsequently perform at their best. That's the purpose of it. Now, the best way I, I would describe that is it's like an ecosystem. There's, there's a whole series of different strands that have to come together to be able to facilitate people for performing at the best. So there's no silver bullet answer to this. There's no one size fits all. It will always be unique to the organization. So, and this will range from things like your guiding behaviors. This will be about uh, your your speed and ability to, to transition quickly. This will be the things that you get that are most important in terms of delivery your people development, leadership development, all of this comes together. So it's quite a complex area. Um, but I think that when you work with teams uh, or organizations that are looking to, to understand organization and development and how it can be a competitive advantage, the place I would urge anyone to start is start at the idea of behaviors. Now, I make a distinction here between organizational values and organizational behaviors. So what I mean is that values are quite an abstract term. 
you can say that you want people to adopt a value of um, being fair or being uh, demonstrating trust. But the reality is people can just say, yes, I agree with that without ever needing to give you any evidence of it. A behavior is something that you have to clearly demonstrate. Mm -hmm. And what one of the big things that I find that often inhibits performance in organizations, Joe, is ambiguity. So when yeah. things are ambiguous or when things are, are a little bit opaque and not particularly clear, you get confused reactions. People behave in a subjective way. But when yeah. people behave subjectively, you get lack of consistency, which is a big frustration, whereas high-performing organizations consistently deliver. So that's why I think behaviors become really important to be able to articulate um, what what are the non-negotiable behaviors. So the phrase I use is I talk about what are your trademark behaviors, mm -hmm. the, so the behaviors that define you when you're at your very best. The second mistake I see a lot of organizations do is though they might go down the behavioral route, but they come up with a big long shopping list of all the behaviors they want people to adopt. Yeah. What elite cultures do is they prioritize, so they don't have any more than three behaviors, three mm -hmm. non-negotiable trademark behaviors. And a nice way of doing this, if there's anyone listening to this that thinks, oh, I'd be interested in maybe adopting it in their world. The exercise I encourage anyone to do is something called success leaves clues. Now, what that means is you start by answering the question, when we're good, why are we good? And when you're able to articulate what, what good looks like in your world, you will find consistently present behaviors that, that, that exist. And then they become almost your, your foundation stone to build the culture on. So the idea is how do you then create an organization that facilitates the delivery of those behaviors at the highest level as consistently as possible? Wow. It's just about simplifying it to get the best of the behaviors. Yeah, and that's often a big challenge for us that, that like I say, that what you find is that I've made reference when we were talking about different types of cultures. And one type of culture you have, uh, that often um, can exist is a bureaucratic culture. And a bureaucratic culture is almost where it's driven by rules and regulations and policies and procedures. So decisions tend to be made by a consensus. So you try to keep as many people happy as you can. And that means you often fudge or you end up sort of being quite political about behaviors. And that's where you end up getting a really long list. Now, commitment cultures, as I say, they simplify it and just say these. Are, so there's a great phrase that we were talking off air before about organizations like Disney. And mm -hmm. one of the things that Disney often talk about is that they say, you, when you join Disney, you, join, you don't join a business, you join a culture. Yeah. And the idea behind it there is that they've got three non-negotiable behaviors. If you're in a customer service role, they give you three behaviors and they take it a step further. They even give you the behaviors in order of priority. So they say that if you're ever confused, if you're ever in a situation where there might be a number of options you can take, if you apply the behaviors in the order that they've ranked them for you, mm -hmm. it, it gives you a clear way of being able to know how to respond and a confidence that everyone else will respond in the same way as well. Wow, okay. Fabulous. Uh, why is change important in an organisation? Well, change is 
important just because, I mean, change affects all of us in, the, in every possible way. So you'll often hear people, like, one of the things that I say, I encourage people to look out for in their organisations is you'll often hear people that resist change and are, and they'll do it in subtle ways. So they won't say, I hate change, but they'll, they'll tell you that things like, oh, it was better back in the day or years ago or this place has changed. But it's often not said as a compliment. Yeah. So I encourage anyone that's charged with the responsibility of making change not to allow comments like that to go without comment. So when you hear somebody say, for example, take a silly example, like where you hear people say, oh, kids are different these days. Yeah. I often say, stop and say to them, compared to when? Yeah. And you'll stop people in the tracks. You say, what do you mean? You say, I'm asking you, when do you think kids are different compared to when? When, like, when are you comparing it against? And what you look near is like grown adults saying, well, when I was a kid, and these might be people that are in the 50s, and you go, so you're talking about your childhood, which was like 35 years ago, and they go, yeah, yeah, and you say, so do you not think society has moved on? Do you not think society has changed? There's been no other changes in the world around you in that 35 years? And the answer is, well, of course to that. So you say, so why do you expect children to, be, to react in a different way? So, yeah. so we all deal with change, so like when we become parents or when we sort of embrace new technology, we get a new phone or something like that. We, we're actually skilled at dealing with change. It's when change um, is done clumsily or we don't feel that we have any input in it that people will often try and resist it. So one of the things that all organisations that need to be able to adapt and transition quickly is a question of... So how well are you equipping people to make change take place? Because what might appear common sense doesn't always appear to be common practice. So actually investing people with the skills to understand how they have already successfully dealt with change, but equally the replicable skills that they can use to deal with change again and again and again is a really necessary skill for all organisations. Unfortunately, it's not always recognised um, as a priority, it's almost the case of tell people what to do and then and then try and deal with the fallout of them not doing it. Whereas if you can give people the skills yeah. before you ask them to change, you can often make it happen a lot easier. Yes, yeah, so the change happens, then it's the fallout after it's quite difficult then to get everyone back on side. Yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. So, so when I, I, I again, the, I'll give you an example that I, I sometimes get calls from organisations that and the theme of what they're looking to develop amongst their staff is resilience. And my like the first question I always ask or the challenge I give to them is, well, tell me, because I've yet to meet anyone that needs to be resilient in the face of kindness or decency or understanding. But I've met plenty of people that need to be resilient when they're in an organisation that is pretty unforgiving and yeah. relentless and and, and unpleasant. So, is it genuinely resilience that you need, or is it a, is it a cultural problem that you possess? Because the challenge is, what you're suggesting otherwise is you're going to armour plate people to deal with a difficult environment. So the reality is, if you can give people the skills to to manage change, but do it in a sensitive manner that still acknowledges the human being un, underneath the role, that's how you create high-performing cultures that can adapt quickly. Yeah, right from the start as opposed yeah. to having to try and do it off after the fact. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Damien, what are the main objectives for any company going through a change? 
Well, that's a really good question. Um, the, the, so, I'd say the main objective for any company is, first of all, be able to articulate why the change is happening. Because what you often find is that one of the big frustrations in organisations that um, where change is often happening is they say that people can gossip about it. And when I hear people gossiping about the reasons behind change, I would challenge the leaders to say, you haven't communicated good enough or effectively enough. And in the absence of your communication, people are making up their own stories of what's going on instead. So if you can articulate why the change is happening, and not just give people... So a big mistake I see is people use fear, facts, or force to get people to change. I call it the three Fs. So you frighten people into changing to say, if we don't do this, we won't exist. So you have that ridiculous phrase of creating a burning platform. The second reason you do it is you just give people stats and facts and figures that doesn't really speak to them. Is the, is the emotion that, that, that they need to tap into. Well, the th third reason is when you just tell people you'll do it because I've told you to do it, so you pull rank. Now, all three of those tactics work in short-term uh, situations, but they're not sustainable for long-term change. So instead, you, there's a, the, I counter it with almost like, you, you, for an organization that wants to induce change, you talk about the three R's. So first of all, you have to, relate to people and give yeah. them the sense that you understand them and you tap into that. Then you have to uh, reframe it and get them to understand the benefits of what you're looking to change. Mm -hmm. and then the third arm is you need to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until yeah. people are comfortable with it and get to grips with it. So what most organizations do to summarize the answer to that is they use the three Fs to induce change. What successful cultures and organisations do is they use the three R's to remedy it instead. Yeah, and you know what? That's really resonated with me because in a previous company, we went through quite a big change. It wasn't communicated well. We were all talking about it between ourselves. You almost yeah. build fear because you don't know what's really going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you think about it like an easy way to illustrate how people gossip is you think of things like uh, conspiracy theories. So when um, when sort of a, a attack happens or there's a disaster, one of the first things that you'll appear is people's conspiracy theories emerge to try and give you a story of of, um, of why it happened. Yeah. And the reason is is because the human part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, doesn't compute that the world is random and chaotic and occasionally a dangerous place. So to counter that, we try and make up stories that allow us to navigate through change in a comfortable way. If we can sort of justify it and understand it, we can yeah. deal with it a lot easier. So when I um, so when I um, see it in organisations, gossiping is the equivalent of conspiracy theorists. Jeez. So it's about it's about being able to communicate the why of change just as mm -hmm. much as the what. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad it resonates. Because I've been through it myself, um, it, it all makes absolute sense. And then subsequently, I ended up leaving because I didn't like the change. And at no point was it communicated well. So it had quite an impact on my life because yeah. of the change not being communicated. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. That's it. You often see that. That, yeah. that, that, like I say, you, 
if you apply the three R's to it and you say, did they relate to me? Did they understand my fears as a human being? Then did they reframe what the change was about and what benefits I'd get? And then finally, it's that idea of, did, did they repeat it and repeat it until they knew I was comfortable with it? Yeah, no, you've simplified it. It just, it, you've made it sound so, it's just easy to understand. Yeah, well, thank you. Cheers. I mean, and, and, but, but again, that's a, like, I appreciate your kind feedback there, Joe, but yeah. a lot of this is, is about that I, I, I do try and invest a lot of time trying to think of ways to explain it because, like you say often, that what, what appears common sense to, to a leader, for example, because yeah. they're immersed in the reason behind it and they understand the subtlety yeah. and the nuance. The ability to communicate is a different skill than the ability to understand why you've done it in the first place. Wow, absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. You, you've really simplified it. Um, I, I get it. I really get it. And I can now, sitting back and thinking back, what, five years ago for me, where it all went wrong. Right, okay. So, yeah. Fantastic. See, but then the thing is, but then, and, and again, once you understand that, you... you yeah. The idea is, so what, so what you're doing, what you're describing, the process you're going through is, you're engaging in that reflection to say, well, why did it happen? So when you understand that, that then gives you the skills to be able to say, so how would I deal with it again next time? But, Damien, I am not spoken to you. I would probably never thought about it again. It's only speaking to you now, and I've been able to relate to something that happened to me in my previous position. To right. Say, oh, gosh, this is why I was where I was. Because of that, at no point did anyone speak to us about it. No one checked to see if we were okay with it. It wasn't communicated at a level we understood. It was communicated at a very top level. Um, and what came across to the whole thing was that it was for that they were doing it because of the needs of the business as opposed to the needs of the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then look what. The, the, so some of the predictions that you can sort of follow up again and and. Uh, the, so without knowing the example, because I know we've not spoken about this mm. before the call is, I guarantee that some of the dysfunctional behaviours that followed from colleagues on that was that some people went into freeze mode, which is very much about being very apathetic and stopped caring. Some people yeah. would have gone into very cynical mode and been aggressive and abrasive, which is the fight response. And some people, yeah. like you've described, went into flight mode, which is disappear, go off, yeah, yeah, the sickness rate goes up and then some people decide, you know what, I'm better than this, I'll go somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. It was absolutely, and you've just, um, they were trying to change our contracts and a lot of people didn't agree with it. Some people just kind of just went along with it and they subsequently left. Yeah. They didn't like changes but wasn't prepared to stand up and say, actually, don't like your changes, but there was a good proportion of staff that did say, actually, I'm going to stand up for my rights. You're not going to change this, that, and the other because yep. they were entitled to do that. Uh, but it was it, it then caused, believe it or not, between the team, um, divided. So some people agreed, some people didn't. So all of a sudden, these people at your team, you almost feel individual and alien to them. Yeah. But then again, that goes back to the idea that I'm sure those people were smart, intelligent people. Yeah. that had the clear rationale but then the question yeah. I'd ask is how much time did they invest in the understanding change bit so they yeah. would have understood what the change they wanted to implement was 
but how much time did they do the bit that precedes it of understanding the human impact of, of how change uh, feels and how you can mitigate and do your best to uh, to put plans in place that you make change appear a smoother transition. Yeah. Wow. It's really made me think and made me understand as to why I was where I was at the time. But, yeah. Oh, well, that's Dave. great. Who's responsible for um, organisational development? Well, that's a great question. So, um, again, this comes back to that ecosystem answer that I gave you, that there's no one there's no one person. Yeah. So if you're relying on just one person to do it, um, you've got the culture that develops there is an autocracy. So you're relying on one or two people to force change through. Again, a commitment culture says there's, leaders play a big part in it. But I like quoting the stats and leaders that says, it was done by a Dutch economist that said that he looked at the question of how much impact the leaders have on the bottom line in terms of the ultimate performance of an organisation. And what he found was it was about 10%. Now, I like that stat for two reasons. Because one, sometimes you can use it with some leaders just that, that maybe have a bit of an ego and stop them getting carried away. Because you say, you're important, but you're not that important. Yeah. But the other reason I like it is because it allows leaders to focus and say, are you maximising your 10%? So they play a big part in it. But then what I also say is that it's the role of the, another phrase that from that research I was telling you about Barcelona is cultural architects. These are, you have people in an organisation that are leaders. They just don't have the title of being a leader. But they're people that when they speak, they speak mm -hmm. with real credibility, that people engage and switch on and listen to them. So you need to develop people like that, that really identify with the culture, that care about it, and that are prepared to champion it as well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, when and why should an organisation use a development plan? Uh, when should they use it? It should be a, it should be a constant thing. So if you think about, and this is where, when I was thinking, so when I was talking about interviewing those coaches for that book, The Winning Mindset, we're looking about how sport does it. Yeah. Sports coaches don't deliver feedback once a year in an annual appraisal or do it every six months. They're doing they're doing it constantly, so they build feedback loops into their whole environment. So a feedback loop says if you give people evidence that's directly relevant to the job that they're doing and it has a clear consequence, it either delivers results or it doesn't, you give people the opportunity to change their behaviours a lot quicker. Yeah. So if you can think about, like, we have a mental model in our head of it. Development plans are often sitting down in, a, in an office and having, like, an afternoon's worth of conversation. They're valuable, but they're not development plans on their own. It should be a constant process. So, yeah. so I'll give you a really simple uh, analogy for it, that, or one that works for me is, if you think of um, road safety laws, so how do you get people to stop speeding on roads anywhere around the world? What they've found is the most effective way isn't punishing people with speed cameras or having police officers try and catch you. The most effective way is using radar displays so when you drive through a radar display that flashes up your speed and gives you a yeah. smiley face, yeah. what we know is that people stick to the speed limit for about 7.2 miles longer than any other method. Oh, and the yeah. reason is, is, well, the reason is, is because you're going through a feedback loop. 
So you're getting evidence of the speed you're driving at, and yeah. the relevance of it is 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 about the road that you're travelling on. The consequences: if you're going too fast, you might hurt somebody or yourself. True. And therefore, you've got the ability to just take your foot off the pedal and change your behaviour. So it just gives you a reminder. So what, again, in organisational development terms, I often encourage people that are looking or are interested in this to say, how can you develop feedback loops all the way through your organisation that tell you whether you're on track to deliver good performance or not and get yeah. people to think about ways in which they can do this? Fabulous. Thank you. Pleasure. What key techniques do you recommend during the change process? The key technique I'd advocate, I know we referenced it before, so I'll, apologies for doing it, but is I would start with this idea of success leaves clues. So I would start in any organisation by asking the question, when you're good, why are you good? Now, whether, whether you want to analyse it through, it might be the best feedback you've ever had or it might be the best year's results you've ever achieved. Whatever it is, start and rather than take it for granted, do a proper dissection of it and have a look at the DNA of when we were good, why were we good? Now, like I say, out of that, you will get a series of behaviours that have been consistently present and that's where you start the process of saying, how do we deliver those behaviours more consistently across the board? Because when we deliver those behaviours, that's what, if we marry that up with the ability we have to do our job, those two factors will drive improved performance. Thank you. What extra material could you recommend for people wanting to find out more? Extra material? Um, I'd, I'd encourage people just to read, 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 yeah. read, and read. So it almost doesn't matter. I, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't particularly advocate any any specific book for it because that will be dependent on the individual okay. and their interest but I would say there's always something you can learn if you're prepared to read about this so even if it was you're interested in reading for example autobiographies of successful people find out read it with a discerning eye to say well what lessons are they sharing with me here what were the behaviors that they were constantly demonstrating but go and when you go and visit or, or just pay attention when you go into places where service is good so it might be you go to a restaurant and you get really good service rather than take it for granted stop yeah. and think about well what was that service what was it that made it good because what you'll find is that a lot of high performing cultures will often bring people in from outside of their industry because they're not hidebound with um with sort of convention or rules so this is a part this is a nice way of articulating the role I play sometimes with sports teams is that my job isn't to be there to make technical judgments. So say, for example, working with a rugby team, my job isn't to go and make some comment about the rugby playing ability of the players in that environment because that's not my job. My yeah. job is to maybe come in and share ideas from different organisations about how you can create a culture where those rugby players can get the best out of themselves. Yeah. So... So I'd say just pay attention to where success is happening, when good performance is happening in any context. I'd encourage people listening to say either read about it or go and explore it in more detail. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Um, last question. Yep. If you could give three top takeaway tips, what would they be and why? Wow, that's good. Um, the first tip I'd give is... Um, 
is be kind. And I know that might sound a little bit unconventional when we're talking about organisational development, but but I think kindness is such an underrated virtue uh, in organisations. So when I made that observation before about people don't need to be resilient in the face of kindness. So when we start by being kind and showing a level of understanding and decency to both other people and just as importantly to ourselves, yeah. I think that's a really powerful way because uh, of getting people to embrace change because they will naturally do it if you know that you've got their best interests at heart. The second tip I'd give is um, this idea of start from the premise of when you're good, why are you good? Because I find that that's an inclusive exercise rather than exclusive. You're not looking to punish anybody. You're looking to involve everybody in answering that question. And you'll find that most people have got an opinion on why success happens. So it's yeah. worth listening to them and involving them. And then the final quality is courage. And what do I mean by that? I mean, it's just a willingness to actually do something different. So not just following the herd and do what others do is having the courage to to ask ask questions without knowing the answer or go and explore something without necessarily knowing the result that you want to get because it might take you into an area that has some real value for you. So they're the three things I'd say, Joe. First of all, be kind. Secondly, okay. look at what you when you're good, why, why you're good. And then thirdly, just have the courage to act on your intuition and your understanding. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I resonate with all of that. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you. Damien, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really nice to speak with you. Yeah, likewise as well. No, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on.